so when I first saw that uh, video, I just laughed. I said, this is hilarious. Uh, we'll, we'll rip any ideas off that we can find that are good ones. We just, there's no shame in that. Um, we're starting a new series this uh, weekend, and it's about serving. And, you know, there's a lot of ways that we can encourage you to get involved in serving. We can say, hey, listen, if you start serving, you'll grow. If you're part of a serving team, it'll be a way for you to grow spiritually. And that's certainly true. We could say, you know, if you're serving, if you're using your gift and ability that God has given you, and that's certainly true. And if you use your gifts and ability that God has given you one day, he's going to say, well done, great, good and faithful servant, enter into your reward. And that's absolutely true. And that's a good motivation. We could tell you that when you serve, you make a difference, an eternal difference in people's lives. And whether you're serving behind the scenes or in front, uh, it doesn't really matter because the bottom line is we're a part of a team. And uh, Paul says the body, uh, the church is like a body that there's members. And when all the members function together, it's a beautiful thing. And that's absolutely true. And it may be that you'll say, you know, I, I'm a thumb or I'm a, I'm a leg or I'm a, a whatever. And But I want to be part of a body and I want to serve in where God has placed me and those are all true but what I want to do is I want to give you probably the ultimate reason and motivation for why you should serve and that's what we're going to look at this weekend Uh, so if you want to turn to Philippians chapter 2 we're going to look at a passage this weekend that is probably one of the most profound theological passages in all of the Bible we're never going to do justice in the time that we have but we'll do the best that we can But in our time together, we're going to make some important discoveries about who Jesus is and what motivated him to come to earth and to give his life. Uh, I just want to say to you, too, if you stick with us this year, and I know, you know, uh, that you're not going to be here every week. But if you stick with Hope Church and you're regular on the weekends, you're going to grow in your knowledge and love of Christ. You will, because you're going to interact with the Word of God like we are today. And you're going to interact with God's people, which is a good thing. You're going to grow even more when you become part of a small group. That's why we want everyone, as many people as possible, to be part of a small group. Because when you're around God's Word and God's people, growth takes place. What happens is when you separate yourself from God's people and God's Word, that's when the problems come in. So if I could challenge you to do anything is... Get yourself close to God's Word. Get yourself close to God's people, and good things will happen. So I want to read, this is on page 900 of the Chair Bible. This is Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 11 I want to read. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others, too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Now, stop there, because it seems as though as the next part of the passage that I read was an early hymn, it was an early poem that the church used. And Paul is using this in Philippians, and uh, it was probably an early creed of the church. Notice what it says. So he says, this is the, the line before that, he says, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we want to look at two questions that this passage really answers for us about Jesus. Number one, it answers who Jesus is, and it answers a little bit of, it gives us a little look into his mindset. What was he thinking? What, what, what drove him? Uh, so what do we learn about Jesus? There's two things we learn, and they're really held in tension in Scripture. The first one is that Jesus was and is fully God. Paul tells us that, that God became a human uh, in Jesus, that he gave, and that he gave his life as a criminal on a cross and died a criminal's death on a cross for us. Well, how did he become human? He didn't give up his divinity he took upon human flesh. And there's, there's really important to understand that. He has always been God. He always will be God. The incarnation is not his beginning. And the incarnation is just a theological word that means that God became man. You know, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem in a manger, uh, that is the incarnation. God became man. Heaven came to earth in a man, in a, in, as a man in Jesus Christ. So being born a baby in Bethlehem, he took on human flesh. He never lost his godness. He never was less God. He didn't give up his godness. He took on human flesh. Now, there's a few things that we need to understand about this, because this is where a lot of the cults get it wrong. Jehovah Witnesses, Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons and others who deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Number one, Paul's not saying, he's not saying, that Jesus is under God. He isn't uh, below God in rank, in, in importance, or in essence. Jesus isn't a semi-God. Or, secondly, he's not a demi-God. He's not a little God. Now, the Greeks had a lot of gods. They had gods all over the place. They, and, and many of the religious uh, people around the Jews uh, through the Old Testament had many gods. But the Jews didn't. Jesus wasn't a demigod, he was fully God, and he was and always will be God. And he isn't created, that's another thing that's important to understand. Jesus never had and has never been part of this creation. In fact, if you read John chapter 1, Jesus is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Uh, He made everything uh, in the universe. He not only made everything, but he sustains everything. Now, I want to just stop here and give you a contrast so you can see the contrast. It's important to see the contrast. And why is this important? Oh, for example, the Mormons hold that Jesus is the firstborn spirit child of God. That God the Father, or Elohim, is God, and he had spirit children. Jesus was one of his spirit children. Satan was one of his spirit children. That makes them brothers. And we are spirit children looking for bodies, essentially. And so, in a sense, they would say that Jesus had a beginning like the angels. They were created, and all the spirit children were created. And so Jesus is just a spirit child. But the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus, the Father and the Spirit, are co-eternal and co-equal God. We call that the Trinity. It's a mystery. It's hard to explain. It's hard to get our minds around it. There's a number of analogies, and none of them do justice. But what it says is that there's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They are co-eternal, meaning they have no beginning, no end. They were there before time existed. They have been in relationship with one another from eternity, and they are co-equal. There's not one that's greater, or there's not a pecking order, so to speak. 
And uh, notice, uh, jump over, I don't have this uh, on the screen, but on page 903, just a couple other pages back, in Colossians 1, Paul is describing Jesus. And this is what he says about Jesus. By Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And essentially what Paul is saying is that whether it's in the physical world or in the spiritual world, there is nothing that he is below. He is over all of them. The spirit world and the physical world, he is over all of them. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. In other words, he didn't just create everything. He holds everything together. So what I'm trying to to build up and I'm trying to teach right now is the deity, the godness of Jesus Christ, that he is and always has been God. Now, what he did was he took upon himself the limitations of human flesh when he became a baby. Now, I just want to throw another thought in that I had recently. Some of the cults, they'll come and they'll say, well, it says that Jesus is under the Father. There's a number of these under the, the Father statements. And um, usually it's when Jesus was here on earth, he uses this, you know, this phrase, he's my father, I do the will of my father. And, and even in the Colossians passage, if you go back, they use this phrase, firstborn. They say, well, firstborn means that he had a beginning, which that's not what it means uh, in the Greek. Uh, and it means that he is under, that he's the son of God, so therefore he's under God in, in rank. Um, and, and that's a misunderstanding of the word, uh, the Greek word under there. And I'm not going to give you the Greek word and bore you with all of that. But just let me give you a common illustration. We know that uh, England has a number of prime ministers, right? There's a prime minister right now in England. Does that mean that they're the first minister or even the most important minister? No, it's a title. They're the prime minister. It's, you know, and, and essentially that's what firstborn means in, in when it is used in Scripture. It's not talking about rank. It's not talking about a birth. It's talking about a title. Okay? So, the point I want you to see here is that Jesus has always been and always will be God. He's not a created being. He's not under God. He is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father and with the Spirit. Now, some people believe that uh, Jesus kind of grew with a legend. It's like when you go out fishing. And some of you fish or you hunt and you tell stories to your kids or your grandkids. And you were out one day at the end of the, the, the pier or you were at the dock and you threw your rod in and you pulled in a little sunfish. But now it's become like the biggest walleye in, in Iowa. And you have the record. And, 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 and the legend grows, right? We all have legends. My boys, when they come home after we play in the turkey bowl, which is the only time we get them home anymore, they, they tell these stories. And by the end of the day, it sounds like, was I at the same game? Because I don't remember that. Uh, it's, it turns into a legend. And they're saying about Jesus, essentially some people say, well, they had, he had his followers. And the stories got bigger and bigger and bigger until he was healing people. And he was performing miracles. And now he's God. And so deity was almost granted to Jesus over the years. And they say, you know, Jesus never really claimed to be God. Never claimed it. Well, yeah, he did. So I want, to get, I, want to, I want to prove to you from Scripture that Jesus knew who he was and he claimed to be God. Um, we're going to jump back to the Old Testament just for a minute. So in the Old Testament, uh, in, in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel are slaves in Egypt. 
And Moses, God's man, is out in the wilderness and he's tending to his flocks. And he sees this bush burning. And I want to read you that portion of scripture. This is uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called him from the middle of the bush. Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Don't come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the Lord, I am the God of your father, and the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. So it's very clear that Moses understands he's meeting with God, Almighty God, right? So he covers his face. So God basically, out of the bush, instructs Moses to go down to Egypt and to tell the people that God has sent him and to tell the Pharaoh that God has sent him. And so Moses doesn't want to go. And there's this debate. You can read about it in the chapter. But essentially, he comes to the place where Moses is fine. Who do I say sent me? Who do I tell the people of Israel sent me? Who do I tell the Pharaoh? Who do I tell them? Uh, who do I tell the Pharaoh sent me? Who, who, in whose name am I coming? And that's what I want to read to you next. This is verse 13, if you jump down. Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask, what is his name? Names were so important because they not only gave an identification of who it was, it talked about their power and their might, and their, their, their majesty, their kingdom. And he says, and then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Now, just the phrase I am speaks of, it's not I was, I will be, I am. It's just eternality. It's, it's the name of almost eternality. And he says, I am. You, when they say who said you, say the great I am has sent me. All right. All right, so that's so it's very clear. Moses talking to the burning bush. God identifies him. He says, when people want to know who sent you, Moses, tell them, I am sent you. Now we come to the New Testament, and Jesus is with a crowd of people. And he's teaching them. And they're not really buying at all. In fact, they're coming to a point where they're saying, yeah, we really kind of need a little, who sent you? Who sent you? Who who sent you? Why are you speaking? In whose name are you speaking? And I want to read you that passage. This is John chapter 8, verse 57. The people said, you aren't even 50 years old, talking about Jesus. How can you see, uh, how can you say that you've seen Abraham? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. Now, Jesus is saying, doing two things there. Number one, he's saying, before Abraham was born, I already existed. That's one thing. He's talking about his eternality. But more than that, he's using the name of God. Now, it's, it's interesting because you say, he's claiming to be God here. I mean, you say, well, how do you know he's claiming to be God? Well, the people certainly understood what he was doing because at that point, they picked up stones to throw at him because, and you'll see, you read in the New Testament, he says, why do they stone him? Because he claims to be God. He's claiming to be God. So Jesus absolutely claimed to be God. Um, so in this passage in Philippians, what we're seeing is we're seeing the deity of Christ. 
that Jesus didn't become God. He always has been God, always will be God. What he's doing is he's taking on the limitations of human flesh. He's becoming a human. Now, the passage, as I said in Philippians, is probably an early Christian hymn. It's an early Christian poem. And uh, this means that it was used in the early church. And Paul is taking that, I believe, and using that as part of his uh, Philippians, his letter to the Philippians. And it's all under the authority of the Scripture. But here's the interesting thing. Paul's words, these words are probably within 20 years of Christ. They're very contemporary. And so it's not a legend. This, there's, it's not that years and years and years have gone by and there's a legend. These are contemporary. Paul basically said we looked at it a, a little while ago when we were looking at Corinthians. And I said, to, Paul says, and, and, you know, he, he gives the gospel. Remember, we talked about the gospel. And he says, Paul says, many of them are alive today and can give witness that the resurrected Christ is there. So it's very contemporary. It's not a legend. Jesus not only claimed to be God, he is God. Um, and and you, you think about it, this is not something that the Jews would come up with. You, you could see the Gentiles coming up with it. You could see the Greeks coming up with it because they had gods, multiple gods. But for the Jews, you know, one of the, one of the, the, the phrases of the Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Is one. So we have to figure out how do we figure out this whole thing of the triune, the Trinity God. The point I want you to see is that God, Jesus, was always God, was always divine. And when you come to uh, some of the cults, they will deny that. They will say he isn't God, he's a little God, he's a demi-God. And uh, I just want you to see Scripture clearly, you know, through Jesus' own testimony uh, and through the letters of uh, people like Paul and others, he is claiming and he is pronounced to be God. Secondly, Jesus became a human being while remaining God. Paul tells us he took on human nature. It's critical to understand he didn't lose his godness, he took on humanness. And obviously there's limitations. If you are taking on a physical body, you are now limiting yourself as far as being omnipresent. Omnipresent just means you, will, you know, God is everywhere. Okay, he's not everything. And, you know, pantheism teaches that God is everything. He's the speaker. He's the stand. He's this piece of paper. He's you and me. God, is, God isn't everywhere. He is everything. He's a part of creation. Christianity says, no, God is apart from creation. He created everything. He sustains everything. He is everywhere. He's not limited by time. But Jesus, when he stepped onto this earth, when he took upon himself human flesh for those 30-some years... He limited himself as far as being omnipresent. Okay? So he didn't lose his godness, but he set aside some of his godlike abilities for the, because of the limitations of human flesh. The phrase we want to use is, being God, he also became human. And so there were certain limitations. Jesus continued to be God while becoming human. Now, notice how Paul puts this. This is Colossians 2.9. In Christ lives all the fullness of God in human body. And that's a great statement. He's the fullness of God in a human body. That's essentially what we have in Jesus. Jesus is the first and only God-man. And, and, and this means... Uh, this, this is really kind of an, an important side application. Uh, what, what God is doing here is because religion, 
we have people who are very religious, and we are people are fairly secular, okay, religious and irreligious, however you want to put it. And people who are very religious make a big point of the spiritual world. They say, it's all about the spirit world, and we're going into the spirit world, and our bodies and this physical world doesn't really matter. Our planet, we don't really worry about it because God's going to destroy it anyways. We're going to step off of it. Uh, you know, and if you're a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial person, you say, hey, I'm not going to even be here during the tribulation, don't really care, would hope that things are okay for my kids and my grandkids, but frankly, the Lord's going to come before that, I hope. And so I don't really care about this physical world too much, and the physical needs of people, yeah, that's important, but the spiritual needs are more important, and the spirit is more important than the body. And so religious people can tend to say the, the spirit world is the spirit is more important than the physical. Now, secular people or irreligious people would say, no, the physical is more important. I don't even know if there is a spiritual. And so this world and this life and how I live and how I take care of this planet and and how I take care of my 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 common man is important. And. There's truth in all of these, but the point is, Jesus brings both of them together in His incarnation. God says, the physical world I created. I became a man in the physical world. I had a physical body. The physical and the spiritual are just as important. By the way, when if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, one day you'll be raised, and your body will be raised with a glorified body. And you will eat, and you will probably there will be a, a lot of consistency from this life to the next. But it will be much, much better. The point I want you to see is, many times religion and other belief systems either make an emphasis of the spiritual or the physical and what Jesus does in the incarnation and what Paul's doing in Philippians 2 is he's saying Jesus was fully God and fully man spiritual physical wedded together you think about the two greatest events in history and uh, you know barring creation but uh, after creation probably the incarnation is christmas right what happens in christmas god spirit becomes man takes on human flesh right so here's christmas that is wedding those two worlds together the physical and the spiritual together in balance what's the next most important event the resurrection what takes place in the resurrection Jesus rises from the dead in what? A physical body, right? And, and, and the, the point of Scripture is very, the Scripture makes this point to a, to a T because it, you get to the place where you go to Thomas. Now, why, why do they even have Thomas in there doubting? Well, it isn't, it isn't to give us a lesson about doubting. It's to tell us that Thomas had issues with this whole physical, spiritual and, and many people after Thomas would. And so Scripture shows Jesus and Thomas, and Thomas saying, I don't believe it unless I can touch him, unless I can feel the wounds and, and put my hands in his side. I won't believe because I, I, it's just my mindset, my worldview won't hold that. And Jesus says, hey, Thomas, come here. Here's my hands. You want to put your fingers in my wounds? You want to put your hand in my side? See, the point that Jesus is making is the spirit world and the physical world are united in Christ, incarnation and the resurrection. And in the world to come, we are going to have physical bodies, spiritual bodies. 
And so this, this hymn, this, these verses that we're looking at, we're, Paul wants us to know, God wants us to know that Jesus is different than anyone that's ever stepped on this planet. He lived a more powerful life, a more successful life than anyone ever did, but he did it under the limitations of human flesh. He was limited just like we are. He got tired. He was hungry. He got discouraged. He was lonely. He suffered pain, betrayal. And, and, and so what we see here in the first part is the human and divine in perfect balance in Jesus. Now, it's important to understand that. Because when we think of Jesus and we think of his relationship through all eternity with the Father and the Spirit, there was this ongoing dance. There was this ongoing relationship that the Father had with the Son and the Spirit. Um, and you see it in his baptism. You see glimpses of it here on earth. In his baptism, what do you see at his baptism? You see Jesus who is being baptized. He comes out of the water and you see the Spirit of God hovering over him like a dove, right? Here's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And then you hear a voice from heaven saying what? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So there's this, this love, this devotion, this relationship that Christ has had through all eternity with the Father and the Spirit. This is, and this is going to be important. What I want you to see is that God is, it's a mystery. It's hard for us to explain. It's hard for us to understand. But the Trinity speaks of this ongoing, eternal relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In creation, you see it. The Spirit is hovering over the waters, and the, God said, let there be and it was and and in john we're told it was the it was the son you know and so we see the 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 workings of the trinity all through the the old testament and the new testament now why is this important because then we come to what paul says in this he says let this mind be in you which was also in christ jesus in other words have the same mindset as christ so the question is what's the same mindset where does that come and how does that apply to serving? That's what I want to finish our time out. And I have a little bit of time to do that. So the question we're asking is, why do we serve? Because that's essentially what this whole Philippians passage is about, is the God of the, 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 God of the universe, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who sustains the heavens and the earth, dove deep. He, he dove so deep, you couldn't dive any deeper. How deep did he dive? He dove so deep that he was executed as a common criminal on a cross. The God who created everything came into his own creation. His world did not accept him. Instead, they crucified him, and they mocked him, and they put him up on a cross like a common criminal and executed him. That's diving deep. That's humility. And he says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. So you say, well, how do we do that? What does that look like? So let me ask you this. Why do you serve? Uh, again, you can have multiple mo- good motivations for that. Uh, you can also have also not so good motivation to you quid pro pro quo you could say uh, you know i'll scratch your back you'll scratch my back um i'll serve you hoping that one day you will serve me or you know you'll owe me you know the god godfather is a negative one but um you may serve because it makes you feel good you say well i'll serve because it makes me feel good and it, and, and there's nothing wrong with 
doing it because it makes you feel good. Or you may say, well, I'm going to serve because it will earn credit for me with God. One day I'll have all of these these uh, stars next to the things that I've done. I've given my money. I've given my time. I've served God. And I'll stand before God. And, and if God's were to say, why should I let you to heaven? Say, look at this. I've got all these things that I've done for you. And, and of course, you know, I point this passage out to you often in Matthew where Jesus says many, many will come, not just a few, but many will come to me that day and say, we cast out demons in your name. We did this in your name. We did this in your name. And Jesus says, and I will say to them, depart from me. I don't know you. And, and all they're doing is they're, they've got their list. I did this all for you. You owe me. You owe me, right? It's not grace. It's not grace if God owes you. Or maybe some of you serve because you want to build a reputation. It's good for business. It makes you look good with your family. It makes you look good in your community. So you serve. It's a good thing to serve. It, and and you know, nobody knows why you serve. Only God can see your heart. We can't see your heart, but God can. Well, how do you know if you're serving for the wrong reason? <laughs> how do you know if your motives are kind of like a little twisted, you know? How do you know that? Well, let me just give you one test case. Let's say that there's somebody that you decide to serve. <clears throat> and let's say that you really haven't thought through your motives. It's not like you're, this person can help you or get you ahead or anything like that. But you really go out of your way. You sacrifice and you, you give your time. You, you, you really work hard and you really, you know, you really... You do something really nice for another person. You really sacrifice for them. And then uh, you're done and you, you, you're, you've done your deed and all of a sudden, nothing. No thank you. No card. No pat on the back. No that a boy. Nothing. And you go, I wonder if they didn't get how much effort I put into this. Did, did you... And, and you almost kind of... How was that for you? Was, was, was that okay? And what you're doing there, you're fishing. Oh, 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 I'm so sorry. It, it changed my life. You're the best person ever. You, you get what I'm saying? So, so what happens when you sacrifice and you give and you get nothing from the other person? You get nothing. And what do you do? You say, you ungrateful. You say, well, why'd you do it? You did it because you wanted somebody else to give you an attaboy. Pat on the back. See, you came into that needy. You came into that saying, I need you to do something for me. I'm going to do this for you, but I need you to do something for me. When Jesus came to this earth, he didn't need anything from us. He came and sacrificially served us. He experienced nothing from us, and he got nothing from us. He wasn't needy. He wasn't expecting us to love him back. He doesn't need anything from us. See, he's he's safe and secure in his trinitarian relationship. He he doesn't need anything from us. He's God after all. He's not lacking anything. So the question is why would he come to earth only to be misunderstood, rejected, abused and executed in the most humiliating way possible? St. Augustine, St. Augustine, however you want to pronounce his name, basically said that a non-Trinitarian God is a God who is flawed. 
And what he means by that is this. That a God who isn't already in relationship is needy. But a God who is in a Trinitarian relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, has a loving, supportive, ongoing, eternal dance, relationship, love for one another. They ex- God has, has continually for eternity experienced healthy, loving relationship. And this is one of the reasons why the Trinity is so important. The God of the Bible is a Trinitarian God. He has an eternal loving relationship. Father, Son, and Spirit. That's why the Trinity is so important. So when, when our God creates, He doesn't do it to receive love. In other words, when, when God created the heavens and the earth, when He created earth and He created the garden, He says, well, I have this perfect environment. Now I have to put somebody there because I'm so lonely. I just need somebody I'll put Abraham there. You know, I need a friend. You know, God doesn't do that. He doesn't have to. He doesn't give so that he gets something back. He doesn't need. He's not a needy God. And sometimes we do things and we serve because we're needy. I need affirmation. I need you to help me after I help you. Jesus created the heavens and the earth while being in relationship with the Father and the Spirit. He dove deep when He came to earth from an eternal loving relationship to give His love, not to receive it. He gave without any thought that He was ever going to get anything out of it. And He didn't need anything out of it. I mean, after all, what are we going to give God? God's going to say, well, I didn't have that. Thank you. Some of you are like God at Christmas, aren't you? You get a gift that you don't need. And you go... Thanks, I don't really need that. Now, you'd never say that out loud, but essentially, that's kind of what the way it would be with God. God doesn't need our gifts. He drew all of His love, all that He needed from this Trinitarian relationship. He was moved and motivated by His love from the Trinity as He came to earth and He served and gave His life. Trinitarian love completed Him. Not in. Uh, the point I want you to say is... Paul says, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And I think what Paul's saying there is this. He's saying, Jesus came and served, but he didn't come and serve because he knew one day we would reciprocate that love. And he would say, there it is. There's the payoff. There's what I desperately needed and wanted and was missing in my life. Whatever you want to call God's life. No. He already had that relationship. He didn't come to earth needy. He didn't come because he saw something that was lacking in his godness and his relationship in the Trinity. He came simply because of the love of the Trinity that God decided for some mysterious reason to love us and to send his son. And Jesus chose to do that not for anything we could give him, but for the love that he had within the Trinity. It was a team effort. The Father, Son, and the Spirit, our salvation. So how does this apply to us? It, it's simply this. When you come to serve and you do it because you have a need that you have to fill and you're using the other person or the situation to fill an, an emptiness or a void in your life and they can't do it, then you go... Why should I serve? What am I getting out of it? The answer is 
Probably nothing. And if that's your motivation, if we say, well, you'll grow and you don't really grow, or you say that you'll, you'll use your gift and you go, uh, uh. But there's one motivation that will drive you. And that's the motivation of saying, because I'm a child of God, because I am loved so dearly by God, because I'm accepted by Him, because that relationship, no matter what I do, is never going to change on His side, that He loves me unconditionally enough to send His very Son to earth, and Jesus was willing to go to the cross and be ridiculed and mocked as a criminal, as a common criminal and mocked and and put to death and tortured for me, that, that God loved me so much and he accepts me so much. He provided the only way that I could have back to him. Out of that love, out of that acceptance, I don't need love and acceptance from others. I have the one, the only one in the universe that really matters who says you're loved, you're accepted, you're safe, you're secure. I'll take care of you, I'll provide for you. And out of that loving relationship, you will find a new motivation. Because that's where Jesus found it. Jesus did it because of the fa- his relationship with the Father and the Spirit, basically what moved him and motivated him to come to earth and do this. And so the same motivation, Paul says, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. What was the motivation? It was heavenly driven. He was heavenly powered. And, and when we're heavenly powered, when we, when we bask in His love and His acceptance and His forgiveness, and we realize what, how we're loved and how we're forgiven and how we're accepted by Him, we say, serve. Absolutely. And, and you say, but what if I serve somebody who, who doesn't, doesn't reciprocate? He said, doesn't matter because I'm, I'm not doing it for that. I don't need that. I have Him. <laughs> I have God. Right? And, and so, only as we bask in His love and acceptance for us will we find the ability and the desire to serve one another. Only then will we serve each other without looking for reward or thanks. We will serve out of a deep love and acceptance for the triune God. Here's the point. We can only go deep in service as we bask in His sacrificial accepting love. But once we find His love, we can serve with a new power and a new desire. That's why Paul says, I want you to know how wide and how deep and how long the love of God is for you. Because when you begin to understand how loved you are, you will have an incredible reservoir to love and serve others. And you won't need anything from them because you'll have everything you need from me have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus who came to this earth not because of anything that we could give him but because of an ongoing loving relationship that he had with the father that we can have today that is the greatest motivation you will ever find to serve that you are loved and we have his example to follow Amen? Let's stand. So, Father, this isn't something we can manufacture on our own. It's not a matter of trying harder. It's not a matter of... It's really just a matter of basking in Your love for us. No strings attached on Your love for us. There is... uh, We know how far You will go to love us. You've, You've demonstrated that. And... Jesus, we understand that you're willing to go to the very grave, to death, to a crucifixion for us. 
and you are moved by your love for the Father and the Spirit, may we be moved by your love for us, motivated and empowered by your love. May our service be heavenly powered, inspired and driven. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.